Father God, we enter the gates of the temple of your gathered people this morning with thanksgiving and praise. You are a God worthy of our praise because you are the beginning, the power, and the creator behind all that we see and know. Without you, we truly would have nothing. For we are creatures who need your provision, your wisdom, and your truth. We praise you for your truth that so clearly calls us to live under your loving rule. We praise you for your word, which molds us and shapes us into your image. And we thank you that you desire a relationship with your people. You call us together, unite our hearts in faith, and speak your word to us through those whom you have placed in our lives as gifts. None of this would be possible without your steadfast faithfulness and loving kindness that you have displayed most prevalently in the salvation of your son, Jesus. Thank you for his work of conquering us and pulling us out of the kingdom of darkness and saving us from our overwhelming desire to reign over you. Thank you for his work of giving us forgiveness from our rebellion, sanctifying our hearts through your spirit and making an eternal life in your presence possible. We recognize none of this is because of our merit, but all because of your wonderful character and work in salvation. We confess to you this morning that your word has brought us conviction over the last few weeks. We are a people who regularly dismiss the truth of who you are and what you demand so that we might glorify ourselves and walk in the lie that we can reign as Lord. We regularly contort and twist your word and your character and then present it to the world around us with your name attached to our perverse idolatry. We then use it to lord over one another in a way that glorifies our own false wisdom and self-determined righteousness. Father, please forgive us for these sins. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would instead grip our hearts and minds this morning on behalf of the Father. At every moment where we step into the word you inspired, we pray that you would make us men and women who willingly and purposefully lay aside our will and our lordship so that we might surrender to the will of the one you make known. And Father, we want to surrender ourselves to your will this morning on issues that make no sense to us from our earthly understanding. We pray for the families and communities in Maine who recently lost loved ones to mass murder. We pray, God, that you would wrap your arms of love and comfort around those families who lost innocent lives. We pray, Lord, that you would lead the leaders of those communities in a way that would bring you glory and that you would be able to be seen as the one who lifts up the brokenhearted. Our hearts also groan and cry at the many wars that surround the world. We continue to pray that your will would be done in all of the wars and conflict throughout the world. Our hearts groan at the many lives on all sides that have been lost needlessly. We especially mourn those who are too young and innocent to understand the chaos around them. We know that your ultimate desire is shalom between you and your creation, and so we mourn with you that the state of mankind is still one of rebellion against your rule. At the same time, we also trust you in your providential will and recognize that in many of the evils we see, you are giving people over to their rebellion against you and your commands, as you clearly showed us in Romans 1 a few weeks ago. Societies and individuals that refuse your rightful and just reign will find themselves bringing a self-imposed destruction upon their own heads. Help us, Lord, as a people, to have your empathy towards those who are affected, and help us to have your humility to recognize that without your gracious gift of salvation, we too would still be in bondage to our own sin that brings similar destruction. Please work through your church amidst the carnage to preach your word and draw men and women to salvation. And ultimately, Lord, we pray that you would return for your people and bring judgment to bear so that restoration can occur.
At the same time we mourn this morning, we also rejoice greatly. We rejoice that we get to see a glimpse of that peace that you will unify all tribes and tongues and nations under your just and loving rule. We know that brothers and sisters across the globe, even in war-torn areas, are meeting to glorify your name. And we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters throughout Burkina Faso that are growing through the ministry of your word, which you have allowed us to help grow. We pray for our friend Marcel Yanogo and the work he and his wife Pauline are putting in to train up pastors and their wives in some very dark areas. Please protect them, give them courage and faith to continue facing the daily battle of spiritual warfare that's before them. And here in our own midst this morning, we rejoice that we get to fellowship again with our brother Jared, our sister Lori, and our little brother Carson. What a joy they are to have in our midst and what a gift Jared is to the church in preaching your word. As they finish up the pastoral residency program in Portland and prepare to travel to the Philippines to begin the powerful work of building up the local churches, we pray that you would bless them mightily in their marriage and unity as a family. We pray that you would give them hearts of flexibility and grace for one another and all those around them. We pray that you would provide material blessings richly for them. And most of all, we pray that you would be brought close, uh, that they would be brought close to your side so that they are overwhelmed daily with a joy and peace that only comes from you. We thank you that you've allowed us the joy to connect with them, provide a portion of their provision, and reap the fruit that will come from their labor as we rejoice before the throne with all those who their ministry will reach. We pray this morning for the pastors and churches that they will be helping in and around Baguio City, and we, we pray, Lord, that you would bring them the truth of your gospel in a new and powerful way. As Jared brings the ministry of the word to us this morning, Please use his human words to present your divine truth, and please help our hearts to be plowed up and ready to receive the seed of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a chance to worship along with our brother and sister again, and so give a huge hand to Jared as he comes up and gets set up here to give us the ministry of the word. Sure. Good morning. It's good to be here and be back here this soon. Um, I was, we were here last March. Um, if I forgot your name, remind me, um, and I would like to connect with you again. Um, as I understand, you guys are going through a series on God's Lordship, and this morning, we'll be looking through a book of the Bible. I understand last time I did this too. Uh, we're going to look at one book, trying to see and find the lordship of God, specifically of Christ, from the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll be doing a lot of turning, but I would like for you to see the text that I'm going to bring upon, that I'll be reading from the text of Matthew. But there will be a lot of turning, um, but we'll begin from the first chapter, and we're going to make our way all the way to the end of Matthew. But don't worry, it's not going to take more than an hour. Um, we're not going to read all of Matthew, but we'll be looking at certain parts as we try to understand what is Matthew trying to do, and um, trying to understand and see Jesus through the lens of Matthew. Before we begin, let's, let's ask God and, and pray once more. Father, we worship you as our creator, and you have planned the redemption through your son, Jesus. He is the king that you promised, and you have given him a name above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. And we want to see the nations, as we have read in Psalm 98, also acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And we confess that we often seek a different king. But we thank you that unlike the kings of this world, you are a God who forgives traitors. Because that's who we are. That's who we were. And you have forgiven us through the blood of Jesus who died and rose again. I pray for us, for the saints here at Mission, that you would remind us of Jesus, that you would show us Christ as we look into the Gospel of Matthew, and cause us to love Christ more and more as we see Him in your Word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good stories would often have a moment of crisis when the anticipated hero would finally show up and bring victory and resolution to the, to the tragedy in a story. For example, in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, um, Narnia has been experiencing a hundred years of winter with the reign of the White Witch. And through the prophecies that have been orally passed down, the Narnians are expecting the coming of four human kings, and Aslan, who will overthrow the White Witch and restore the kingdom. In the end, the human children nearly fail to defeat the witch, but Aslan returns just in time to save them. You see this in stories like Beauty and the Beast, where the characters in the palace were searching for a heroine who will reverse the curse. Or the critically acclaimed novel, The Lego Movie, where the Lego people are in search of Master Builder, who will save them from the tyranny of Lord Business. It's in stories everywhere. They're anticipating the hero. There are prophecies about a hero who's going to come. All stories point to the ultimate story. In the Bible, the ultimate story, the story that our lives are part of, when you read the Bible, the Bible is not a collection of just random 66 books if you're reading the English Bible, or random Bible stories. The Bible is one story. Uh, God created a perfect world for man to exercise dominion. But then God cursed the word because of man's sin. Then God promised a seed of the woman to crush the serpent and reverse the curse. Who will be this seed? Who will be this man? Who will come? And then God made a promise to Abraham. All the families of the earth will be be blessed through you. And then God made a promise to David that your throne will be forever. Who is this descendant of David, descendant of Abraham, descendant of Adam, who will reverse all these things? That's how the Old Testament ends. The Old Testament ends 
looking for that seed from Abraham, that king from David's line, who will reverse the curse, cure the sin of man, and bring us back to God. While the best of Israel's kings, David and Solomon, have failed. And the prophets have prophesied about this coming anointed one, this coming messianic king. So once you turn the page from the Old Testament, you get to the New Testament, and what is the first verse of the New Testament? I'm going to read Matthew 1.1 until verse 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. You see how the Old Testament is looking for who is this seed of Abraham, who is this seed of, of who is the king from David. And the New Testament, the first verse of the New Testament tells us the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew is telling us the king that you've been waiting for all these years, it's here. This is Jesus, the king, son of Abraham, Son of David, the one who will bless all the families of the earth, the one whose throne is forever. It's here, this Jesus. And that is what Matthew's book really is all about. Matthew is trying to portray Jesus as the king with ultimate authority. There's the king with ultimate authority. And because of that, he demands our full allegiance. Jesus is the king with ultimate authority, and he demands our full allegiance. And we're going to walk through Matthew as six descriptions of this king, right? Six descriptions of this king with ultimate authority who demands full allegiance. First description of this king. Jesus is the king destined to the throne against all rivals. This is the king destined to the throne. We've read the first part of the genealogy. This is destiny. It's been promised all the way back from Adam. It's been promised. This is the king, Jesus, destined to the throne. This is his destiny. No one can stop it. That's what the genealogy is pointing out. But also what you find in the early you know, your chapter one, you get the genealogy. Chapter two of Matthew and uh, ch chapters two and three, you get a lot of, even chapter one, a lot of um, prophecies. Matthew's gonna cite some of the prophets telling us that Jesus is the king destined to the throne. For example, in chapter 1, 22, he cites from the prophet Isaiah that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, prophet Isaiah, that's chapter 22, 
And what did the prophet Isaiah said? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God, finally with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. This is his name. See, that is prophecy from, from Isaiah centuries ago. And then you have a verse in chapter 2, verse 5. It says here, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told people from Herod, for so it's written by the prophet. What did the prophet say? The prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, and from you, from Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There's going to be a king coming from this little town of Bethlehem. Kind of gives you some Christmas vibes, doesn't it? Prophecies from the Old Testament pointing to this king. But, but, but when, we, when we say the word prophecy or fulfillment, we're not just talking about a prophet saying something that will happen and eventually it will happen. That, that's what we see here from Isaiah and Micah. But there are also something in, in the Old Testament where certain pictures are finally going to be completed. Uh, the, we call this fulfillment in, in, in the sense of, of, of completion. You know, we, we use this term sometimes with students. Uh, have you fulfilled the requirements for your class? Uh, we don't mean that the teacher prophesied that you will going to finish your class. Well, that's not what we mean. We mean, have you completed the requirements? Have you fulfilled the requirements? Jesus is also fulfilling in the sense of completing some things in the Old Testament that didn't happen or, or things where some people in the instruments are pointing towards, pointing forward. Uh, let me give an example, make this clear. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, he rose, took the child and his mother by night. This is, this is Joseph. And departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. They're escaping Herod. This was to fulfill, fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is a quote from Hosea. But it's not a prophecy in the sense of prediction. Hosea is not saying, out of Egypt I called my son. This is now going to be a, a fulfilled when Jesus escapes Egypt. No, uh, in the context of Isaiah or Hosea, Hosea is talking about Israel. Where Israel, out of Egypt, I called you my son Israel. Remember? Moses um, crossing the Red Sea, I've called you out of Egypt, I've rescued you. But why is Matthew quoting Hosea when he's talking about Jesus? Matthew is showing how where Israel failed, Israel, Yahweh's son, failed, Jesus is going to complete that failure. He's the better son than Israel. He was rescued from Egypt just like Israel. But what happened to Jesus in the story of Matthew? Chapter 3, Jesus was baptized into the waters. Chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, tempted. In chapter 5, he goes to this mount and teaches. 
Does that story remind you of something else? Who else came out of Egypt and crossed through the waters and stayed in the wilderness, not 40 days, but 40 years, and then went to a, their, their leader went into a mountain called Sinai? That's, that's reminding me of Exodus. The story of Exodus is happening in the life of Jesus as Matthew is putting this story together. Matthew is saying what happened to Israel is happening to Jesus. Jesus completes what Israel failed to do. This is now Jesus, the king, destined to the throne. And I say against all rivals because in this story, you have Herod who tries all that he could, even killing innocent babies just to kill this king, Jesus. And you have Satan trying to tempt him. But they all failed. So that's Jesus the king. That's into the throne against all rivals. The second description. Jesus is the king who legislates with authority. Legislates with authority. Sometimes it's difficult for us to think of a king who legislates. That's okay. You know, um, that's not how our government works. But, but, we're, but think of a monarchy. In a monarchy, kings act as judge, lawgiver, and the, the executive branch. All branches together in one office. That's how monarchy works. And Jesus is the king who legislates with authority. We've already seen how he is the, the, the new Israel, the better Israel. He's, he's the new Moses. Uh, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, let's look at the end. I'm not going to look at everything in the Sermon on the Mount, but, but the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verse 28. This is the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And it, let me read verse 28. The first words here. And when Jesus finished these sayings, you know that phrase? When Jesus finished these sayings, that happens five times in the Gospel of Matthew. That happens here in chapter 7, 28. Happens in 11, 1, 13, 53, 19, 1, and 26, 1. Okay, well, what's the, what's the point? Um, the phrase occurs five times in the Gospel of Matthew. The formula marks an ending of a discourse or a teaching. So five times in Matthew, Jesus is, goes into this teaching mode. And many people observe that this, this five discourses matches the five books of Moses. Jesus didn't come here to replace Moses, but to fulfill the law. Jesus said that himself in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And when Jesus would teach, he would teach with authority. Let's look at how the Sermon of the Mount ends. Uh, verse 24. Seven, chapter 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is Jesus the King who demands our obedience. If not, we'll be like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. 
when he speaks, he expects obedience on his words. How does the chapter end again? Let, let, let me read the ending. 7.28 When Jesus finished his sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. And now as their scribes. He teaches with authority. He legislates with authority. This is Jesus the King. When he speaks, he expects people to follow. Friends, when this king speaks, it is with authority. Do not ignore his words. Don't be a foolish man who builds his house on sand. What portion of God's word are we ignoring or not obeying? The words of Jesus are weighty words, and those who ignore it face serious consequences. How much are we saturated by the words of Jesus as written in Scripture? Are the words of Jesus the authority that dictate how we think and live our life? It should. These are the words of Jesus the King. Jesus is the king destined to the throne. He is the king who legislates with authority. He is also the king with ultimate authority over all things. Ultimate authority over all things. The next few chapters, chapters 8 to 12, you will find here lots of miracles of healing. Uh, you find Jesus showing authority not only in his words, but also authority in his actions. He is the king who demonstrates that he has authority over illness and sickness and diseases. He heals a leper, chapters 8, verses 1 to 4. He heals a centurion's servant, chapters 8, 5 to 13. And he heals Peter's mother-in-law, chapters 8, verses 14 to 17. Lots of healing and miracles. Chapter 8, 23 to 27, not only he has authority over sickness and illness, he has authority over nature. There was a storm. The disciples were riding on a boat, and there was a storm. And they were afraid. And they said, Jesus, why are you sleeping? And Jesus stood up, rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith, and told the storm to what? Peace be still. Calm down, storm. The storm obeys. Have you seen someone just come out and like, you know, this is Oregon. It rains a lot. Rain, go away, you know, come again another day, right? It doesn't happen that way. No king, no ruler of this world that we have known has power over the weather, except this king. Not only that, he has authority over the spiritual world. Chapter 8, verse 29 Behold, they, talking about the demons, the demons cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? And they asked Jesus permission to be cast to the pigs, and they only went when Jesus said, Go. 
And in verse 31, we read this. The demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Even demons couldn't do what they want to do unless this ruler gives them the permission. Do you, do you feel the authority of this Lord? Illness, diseases, coronavirus? Who has authority over this? Weather? Demons, evil spirits that we can't even see with our naked eye? Chapter 9. What else does this king have authority over? I'll read from verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has, what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And the crowd saw it. And they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. He's the king who alone has the authority to forgive sins. Who do you go when you're laden with the burden of your own sin? And the guilt is overwhelming. You have done it and you have done it again. And this time it's worse than the last time. And you are beat. And you know you've been redeemed. But you keep failing. You go to this king. Because when he says your sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. They're forgiven. Who alone has power to forgive sins? This man alone, this king alone, this Christ. Go to him. If you don't know Jesus, if you're coming here, you're a guest, or maybe you grew up in Christianity, but you are just laden with that heavy burden of guilt, who, who, who can remove this? There was a man hundreds of years ago, that was his problem. Until he discovered, <laughs> he hated God for this because God, why are you putting all these things in me, upon me? And he realized and he found out, oh, God actually, true Jesus, could give me forgiveness of sins. Uh, that was Martin Luther. I mentioned that because today is Reformation Sunday. So happy Reformation. How does the Section N, chapter 9. What, what happened next? He forgave this man of sin. Chapter 9. Now you have Jesus showing authority over death. I'll read in the beginning of verse 23. 
Chapter 9, verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players, the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been set put, put, put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Who can, who can go to a, can you go to like a hospital bed and all those people who are just dying? Just, I'm just going to touch your hand. And the doctor said, no, it's, it's done. We, we've, the, the, the line is going, beep, you know. There's nothing we can do. And Jesus would just touch her hand and say, hey, rise up. And then, dip, And then that starts moving. This is the king has authority over death, over life and death. This is the king with ultimate authority. And as you look through this section of miracles where Jesus is demonstrating not just his authority of word, but authority of action, you have uh, inter, uh, in between all these miracles, passages, people call it discipleship passages, um, but you have sections where the king gives an invitation. For example, in chapter 8, verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 19. The scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Faxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. The disciples did. Chapter 9, verse 9. After the authority to forgive. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. All these stories of Jesus healing and showing his authority are all mixed with some sections of, are you going to follow me? I just did this. I just demonstrated my authority. Are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow me? Because he is the king with ultimate authority. He demands full allegiance. You can't just follow half-hearted. And this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what a real Christian looks like. He's a person who is follower of Jesus. This is not like, oh, some Christians are really followers of Jesus, and there's some, you know... They're the ones that are really dedicated ones. Then there are some Christians who are, they're still growing on the following Jesus part. No. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's no half-hearted Jesus followers. You're either following Jesus or you're not. There's no in-between those who are in between, you did not understand who Jesus is. If you understand his authority, that he is king, and when you submit, I want to follow you. And if you say, well, I, I'm half, half-hearted following, then you really did not understand who this king is. And if you are that person, maybe I'm in between. I, I encourage you, keep reading about Jesus. Keep asking questions. Keep examining who Jesus is. 
Because maybe you don't know him well enough. Because if you do, you will follow him. This does not mean that all who follow Jesus follow Jesus perfectly. Oh, we're following Jesus. Christians, all Christians are followers of Jesus. But as they follow, they stumble and trip and get scarred and, and you know, like, oh, which one is the way again? And that happens. But they're on the path they're following. But if you're that person like, I don't know, I'm, am I going to follow Jesus? Maybe I'm going this way. Oh, maybe I'm going this way. That's not a real Christian. A Christian is a follower of Jesus. You follow, you go, you get on the path. But I understand we all don't follow him perfectly, but we're on the path. We're followers. We're all in. We're, we're doing all this. We're all in. How do people respond to Jesus? Chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus sends his disciples in chapter 10. People are now asking if Jesus really is the promised Messiah King. Chapter 12, verse 23, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Can this be the king? Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. People are now starting to ask questions. Line is now being divided. Who are the ones following him? Who are the ones who are still trying to make up their mind? And who are the ones who are utterly rejecting him? Some followed Jesus but later turned away. And so Jesus now tells different parables to describe the kingdom, his kingdom. Uh, in chapter 13, you have the parable of the, the tares and the weed, the, the tares and the, the weeds and the tares. Wheat and the tares, okay? Then um, you have the parable of the thorny and rocky soil. Um, there's some fruit, but the fruit does not last. People who, are, who said they'll follow Jesus, but the desires of the world became greater that they actually were not truly followers of Jesus. And then there are some people who um, the difficulties and persecution in life chokes the gospel and there's no fruit. And he likened that to a different soils. So true followers of Jesus, there's, it's good, good ground for growing. There's no turning back. And you have various responses. John the Baptist had his doubts in chapter 14. A Canaanite woman called Jesus son of David, asking for mercy in chapter 15. Then he rebukes the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, chapters 15 and 16. But someone responded accurately. Chapter 16, verse 16. Simon Peter replied when Jesus asked, who do, who do, you, who do you think I am? And he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And how did Peter know this? Jesus explains, verse 17. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How about you? How do you respond to Jesus? What kind of soil are you? Are you a soil of thorny, thorny ground? Or the soil of stony ground? Will you be like Peter who would say, 
you're the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or will you be like the Pharisees who would say, oh man, these, all these miracles is probably from the power of the demon. Or maybe you're someone you're still asking questions. Could this really be the Son of David? Could, is Jesus really the King? And I encourage you, keep asking questions. Keep asking questions. Number four, Jesus is the king who rules a countercultural kingdom. In the teachings of Jesus, chapters 18 to 25, we see Jesus' kingdom to be unlike other kingdoms in this world. In this section, there are lots of parables. Uh, what the kingdom of heaven is like. So the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. But, but when you get to chapter 21, which, which we read earlier, this is Palm Sunday. This is now the king entering into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey. You usually think a king would come with a horse. But he exemplifies that his kingdom is countercultural, Not what you expect. Not like what this world is like. This is all happening throughout these chapters. And we don't have time to look at all these chapters. So I'm going to mention just five. What are these five examples? In this kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, humility is a badge, not a sign of weakness. He rides on a donkey. He says, chapter 18, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is a badge, not a sign of weakness. Have you seen a humble king? I don't think I've seen any. A humble ruler, a humble president. That's how, that's how it is in Jesus' kingdom. And he is the first example of it. Second, in this kingdom... Sin is radically removed, not celebrated. In this kingdom, sin is radically removed, not celebrated. Chapter 18, verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. How radical that is. Cut it off. This thing is causing you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. In this kingdom, sin is radically removed, not celebrated. In this kingdom, forgiveness... Not vengeance reigns. Forgiveness, not vengeance reigns. Chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter even wants to, you know, I'll give you a good number. Seven times, right? Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Oh, so it's 77 times. No, the point of Jesus is, you're not count. Who here counts up to 77? Like, I, after my fingers, I run out. I don't know how to count. 
after 10. Like, I don't know. How many times have you seen this movie? Like, I don't know. I run out. I, after 10, I don't remember. It's a lot. That's the point. How many times do you forgive? You forgive until you run out and you can't remember how many times. Because in the kingdom of Jesus, this countercultural kingdom, forgiveness, not vengeance, is what reigns. Number four, in this kingdom, wealth and self-righteousness does not earn entrance. Entrance is freely given. Entrance into this kingdom is not earned by wealth or self-righteousness. It's freely given by faith. Chapter 19 there's this rich man, the rich young ruler, who asks how to enter, how to have eternal life. In verse, 20, in, verse 19, in verse 20, he brags, all these, all the commandments I have kept, what do I still lack? This is a self-righteous man. I've done it all. And so Jesus said to him, verse 21, 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. I want your full allegiance. Follow me. Sell your wealth. Sell all that you have. I want your full allegiance. Follow me. And this guy just walked away. How do you enter into this kingdom? It's freely given. Just follow Jesus. And following Jesus, that's, that's, that's repentance and faith. That's, I'm not following my own way. I'm repenting. And I'm just going to be putting my trust in this Jesus. He says, follow me. Okay, I'm going to follow you. I don't know where. I don't, I'm going to follow you. Because I'm going to put all that I have in you. My trust in you. That's how you enter the kingdom. That's how he told the, 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 the other guy on the cross, today you're, you're with me in paradise. Follow me. Last, number five. In this kingdom, rulers exercise authority by serving, not by being lords. Chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus himself was the example. That's the kingdom of Jesus. That's how it's like with Jesus as your king. It's not what you expect. And those who follow him live under this reign. We're, we're, citizen, we're, we're, we're dual citizens. We're, we're, we are here in this world as sojourners, but we live here. But we're also citizens of a different kingdom. And so we act as a citizen of the other kingdom. It's just like, so I'm an immigrant. Um, I am a full American citizen. Actually, I am not a dual citizen. 
I'm still working on that document. My son, however, is dual. He's Filipino and American. Um, I, when you become an American citizen, you renounce your old citizenship. So I'm working on getting it back. Um, but 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 as I say, I'm now like okay, I'm 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 in America. I live in America. But like like many other immigrants, your culture from where you're really from stays with you, right? Your food, you always have a sack of rice, you know, something you won't find in any American homes, right? There's just you're living life of 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 two worlds, really. And in some sense, Christian life is like we are here. We God has placed us here at this time that we have, in this short momentary period of life. But we are not really citizens of this world. I mean, we live here, we're residents here, we're sojourners here, but we really belong to a different kingdom. And so we live life like we are from that kingdom. That's the culture that we bring into our life as we live here on earth. That's our culture. Kingdom culture. A counter culture. Number five. As we get to the end. Jesus is the king. Not only the one who's destined to the throne. The king with all authority. The king who legislates. The king who rules the countercultural kingdom, but he's a king who courageously fights and dies for his people. What is your view of a king? Is it someone on a throne living for himself in luxury? Perhaps in chess, if you played, you know, the, the, the board game chess. I hope that's familiar enough. The king has very limited moves. Um, it's being protected by the officers and the pawns. But in the ancient world, kings, though authoritative, have a primary responsibility for the people. At least the best kings do. They fight for their people, they protect their citizens. They give them, um, they, they protect them and give rest to their citizens. They defend their borders. That's their responsibility. That's why the people are looking for a king who will fight for us. They themselves many times are in the front lines of the war. And, and the reason in, in medieval times where we have weak kings is because the king, the previous king, died in the war and now the successor is a small kid. Like this kid's not going to, you know, and he grew up in a palace and grew up in luxury and doesn't really want to fight for the people. And that's, that's the beginning of the end of the monarchy. But before that, the kings were in the front lines. Richard the Lionheart, right? The front lines of the battle, of the battlefield. Uh, you see that in the Old Testament. You see with David and King Saul. Saul was supposed to be the one who will go against this man, Goliath. You see this with Jehoshaphat. He even put his king's uniform that makes him stand out among the crowd. Like, don't do that because you're going to target the king. Now I'm going to put my, king, my king's uniform. I'm fighting with my people, making him visible. Even Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, who conquered many parts of the Middle East, actually went there and conquered. 
Um, Alexander the Great himself went to war. Kings were warriors. They're not chess pieces with small moves. This is the king that Jesus is. He is the king with courage. Chapter 27. I'm going to read from verse 36. This is the king who gave himself, he gave his life as a ransom to many. Then they sat down and kept watch over there, over him there, this is the soldiers. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in this same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the king who died for your sins. This is the king who went to battle, faced death head on. He became sin who knew no sin in order to conquer sin for us that we may obtain the righteousness of God in him. He came and said, I'll, I'll absorb, I'll absorb the wrath of God for my people. I'll absorb the wrath of God so that my people would live. With my people, those who would trust, repent and trust in me would live. So I'm going to take it. I'm going to die. If you're not a Christian, and you're wondering, why is Christians so fascinated about the cross? Why are they always singing praises to this Jesus? Why do they love Jesus? It's because Christians believe that Jesus died in their place to pay for their sins by absorbing God's wrath on the cross. It should be me. I should pay for all that I have done. And they are many. If you only know, if you could read my heart and view everything I have done, you would say, yuck. Jesus died for my sins. Do you believe this? This is Jesus the King with courage. He knew the pain. He said, Lord, 
if you will, let this cup pass over me. But I'm going to do this. Well, here's the last point. Jesus is the king who triumphs over death and commissions his followers. Jesus is not in the tomb, for he is risen. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn, for the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell these disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Unlike other courageous kings in the past who died in battle, this Jesus is the king who was victorious over death. He's a victorious king. He rose from the dead. Those who are in Christ will also rise with him. Because he rose from the dead, you who are in Christ will do the same. And you will put on immortal bodies in replace of this mortal body, mortal, decaying, weak body that we have. This is what it means to be a Christian. Christians are followers of this risen king. Is this the king you want to follow? Do you want to follow him in full, full allegiance? Just head on. Whatever, Lord, you say, I will do it. Because I understand your authority, your good authority, that you have everything, you control all things, and yet you gave your life for me. Is the king over the universe. How does the Gospel of Matthew end? Verse 16, chapter 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, came and said to them, All authority, we've been talking about this all evening, all morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So many in this text, familiar text. But I just want to point out two things. First, remember one of the prophecies we read about Jesus, about his birth? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's how the book of Matthew begins. And that's how the book of Matthew ends. I am with you always. Emmanuel, God with us. Whatever difficulty, hardship that would mean to follow Jesus, I am with you always. Always. 
It's hard to follow Jesus. But he is Emmanuel. I am with you always. I am with you forever. It says there, and to the end of the age. <laughs> if anyone asks you, you know, the difficulties of life, you say, well, I made it through because God was with me. Second, we have seen this king who has authority over nature, sickness, diseases, spiritual powers, authority to forgive. But now he has, tells us that all authority, all that we've seen, all authority in heaven and earth, based on that authority and that we have seen all throughout Matthew, based on all that authority, now he is sending his followers, go and make disciples. What a commission. Doesn't this motivate you to go? What, what are we afraid of? We have the authority coming from Jesus the King to make disciples. This is the, the King with no authority, no cultural boundaries, geographical boundaries, social boundaries, or any other boundary outside the authority of this King. We have seen it. He's, he stops the weather. The demons, even. He owns every galaxy, microbe, and hill. The king who owns it all, has the authority over it all, calls us to make disciples. Let's do it. And we all have part, like, like here in, in Salem. We have friends that God has brought us to, to evangelize and, and people to disciple one another here in this own congregation. It's part of what it means to make disciples. And some people are goers, that they would go. Maybe you think, well, I'm not really that goer. Well, some people are also senders. And I know you are senders. You have sent, in some ways, have sent us. And you have sent us well, and we are thankful for you. Goers, they don't make very far without senders. And we are relying on you heavily to be that sender so that we could go. So we thank you, mission, for what you do. You're sending us well. John Piper once said, there are just three people, categories of people when it comes to the Great Commission. There's some who are senders, there's some who are goers, and then there's the disobedient. Be one of the first two. We go under the authority of this king. We're not here to build our own kingdom, make a name for ourselves, be a bigger church, and be in competition. We are here under the same king. We're advancing his kingdom, not ours. And he calls us to follow him. What does it mean to give Jesus your full allegiance? Jesus is king with all authority, with ultimate authority. So repent of serving other kings. What other kings do you have? Who do you follow? Follow Jesus. Obey his words and his commands. Trust in his reign, his sovereign rule, and rest in his forgiveness. Live life according to his countercultural kingdom. Believe in him as your king and savior. And go 
declare about his kingdom to people around you and to the nations. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Thank you for the promises you have given way back from the garden you fulfilled. And you will continue to fulfill until Jesus comes again. Increase our love for Jesus. Call us again to follow him. And call people who are not followers of Jesus. This day may be the day that they would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus alone. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.